an associate professor of criminology here at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. I've been appointed as a Scientia Fellow, which means basically a research fellow, uh, and most of my time is, is focused on, on research. But probably the last 15 years or so, um, most of my work's been with um, adults who describe sexual abuse by groups of offenders in childhood, so what I call organised abuse. When I started doing this work 15 years ago, it was a very controversial area to work in, and there was a lot of scepticism that, that sex offenders who abuse children operated in, in networks and groups. That scepticism has, has disappeared over the time I've been doing, doing the work. Uh, it's really undeniable now that we need to deal with criminal conspiracies of, of pedophiles and, and sex offenders. So, yeah, so that's, that's mostly what I study. So I do a lot of work on the mental health impacts, the sorts of criminal activity that organised groups get up to, and increasingly working also in the tech space, looking at the current epidemic of online child sexual abuse material and, and how we can get abuse images and videos of kids offline much more uh, efficiently and effectively than, than we have been. Fascinating already. Michael, we know that you're involved with the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, and we'd really like to hear what your involvement is and how that group came to be. Yeah, great. Uh, the ISSTD was formed in the mid-1980s, uh, in 1986, and it was formed by clinicians and therapists who were encountering severely traumatized children and adults in mental health settings. So in 1980, the DSM-3 was published. So the DSM is sort of the psychiatric Bible. It is a collection of kind of recognised and authorised psychiatric diagnoses. And in 1980, for the first time, there are a number of trauma-related disorders that were recognised by the psychiatric profession in the United States, one of these being post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but also multiple personality disorder. And when clinicians were taking these diagnoses and criteria into their practice and starting to diagnose clients using this criteria, they were hitting a small but you know, still quite significant group of kids and adults who were severely, severely traumatised and were also disclosing experiences of abuse that were unprecedented. So they were disclosing sexual exploitation, sadistic abuse, networks of abuse, the production of child sexual abuse material. Clinicians came together in 1986 to really start to share expertise and start to um, share best practice and grow the research evidence. The ISSTD has done that work now for, for you know, over 30 years and very difficult work. In the mid 80s, what we saw for therapists and researchers who are working in trauma is a bit of a split for therapists and researchers who just wanted to work with what we might call more simple trauma. So still pretty complex, but simple trauma. So um, combat veterans, um, people who have experienced a car accident, people who have experienced trauma in a single incident. Yeah, there was a split. This was an area of research that was easy to get funding for because you could get funding through Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, it was more credible as well because what people were disclosing was you know, widely recognised and, and legitimised. There was no questions about the credibility of those trauma survivors. They went off in one direction and the ISSTD has always held open a space for complex trauma and complex dissociative disorders 
I've been involved for about five years. I came to sit on the scientific committee about five years ago. And I think two years ago, I was elected to the board of directors. And so I have a role then um, just in, I suppose, the strategic direction and, and, and management um, of the ISSTD. Uh, we have over 1,500 members all around the world. We're, we're growing every year, huge demand for our um, education programs. Uh, we do a lot of work uh, educating therapists and clinicians on how to work effectively with clients with complex trauma and dissociative disorders. So it's an organisation that I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of and it's an organisation, you know, I have a lot of respect for my clinical colleagues because they, they really stand by a group of clients that in other areas of mental health practice I think have been pretty poorly treated. Has, Michael, has that group been active in the United States? Yeah, the ISSTD is actually based in the US. So we are incorporated and, and our headquarters is in Washington. That's our, our key base of operations and most of our members are US based, but we are also sort of growing around the world. So there's a very active um, group of ISSTD members here in Australia and New Zealand. And we have members, um, yeah, um, through you know, every, every corner of the world. Who would be, like, what would be the, the membership made up of? Are they, do they include clinic, just clinicians or do you actually include like school counselors or people who are based in, you know, like institutions where children are, daycare providers? How does all that work? Yeah, great question. So membership is really open to anyone that has an interest in complex trauma and association. If people are um, practicing, so if they're engaged in clinical work or therapeutic work, they need a, they, it's a requirement of our membership that they are licensed or accredited um, in a manner that's suitable for their jurisdiction and their area of, of, of practice. And that's going to change just depending on, um, on um, who you are, what you do, and where you're based, and, and what the sort of regulatory framework is um, in your particular jurisdiction. Um, we're also open to people like myself. So, you know, I don't practice clinically. I don't see clients. I'm a researcher. Um, and we're, we're quite keen to, to engage uh, and, and, and build with um, in more interdisciplinary. Attention, test emergency fire evacuation system. Please ignore all alarms and tones. <laughs> I repeat, test emergency fire evacuation system. Please ignore all alarms and tones. Test only. Okay. I don't have to evacuate. That's just a test. <laughs> it's, okay. 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 We're, we're going to stay with you until we make sure that you don't have to evacuate. No, I don't. It was a test. Uh, we might just do that again. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, yes, certainly, um, you know, we're getting a lot of interest in trauma and trauma-informed care from different professions, so for example, from teachers and, and educators. And I think it's quite important that um, the ISSTD starts to grow um, in that direction because um, ultimately, you know, recovery and, and promotion of well-being after trauma, particularly for kids, it's not necessarily going to involve one-to-one -one care with a therapist. They need to be in trauma-informed environments, particularly at, at, at school. So, you know, if there are teachers, if there are educators who are interested in trauma-informed practice, then I'd really encourage them to get in contact with us. We can start talking about, yeah, about their interests and, and how we can help them. 
Michael, we know that you're also involved with an organization called Child Abuse Prevention Service Australia. Can you tell us what you do with them and why they were formed? Yeah, so CAPS has been around since the early 70s. So it really formed at the, the moment that Australia and I think you know, most of the Western world started to become acutely aware of child abuse as a threat to health and well-being. Um, I've been a, a patron of, of CAPS for the last 12 months and I work with them um, around their program development. Um, historically, uh, a lot of their work has been um, you know, going, going to schools, delivering workshops to teachers and students about, about abuse prevention and, and recognising the signs of child abuse. We're interested, I guess, in more diverse uh, ways of preventing abuse. And at the moment, looking particularly at how we can start to embed um, health and welfare responses to kids in a school environment. But at, at the moment, for kids to receive healthcare, it's actually a pretty high um, kind of uh, barrier uh, because it, it requires their parents to literally take them to a healthcare provider. And there's a lot of reasons why that might not happen, particularly if you're, you have a parent who might be incapacitated or abusive. Um, we're interested in the ways that we can embed health and welfare responses to kids in a school so that kids are just getting the help that they need as they need it. And, you know, in, in Australia, we, we do have uh, an issue with, uh, we have mandatory reporting here in Australia, which means that, um, you know, any um, uh, suspicion of abuse, you know, many professionals are required to report that directly to child protection authorities. But we have so many reports that our child protection system is completely overwhelmed and kids just aren't getting a, an early intervention or the issue for them escalates to a really acute point. So we're interested in, in how we can support kids and support families in a really holistic way without putting all of the burden onto parents per se to actually get their kid in the car and take them to a healthcare provider. Um, but also how do we support those kids where we can't rely on their parents to keep them safe? fascinating because I was an elementary teacher for years, years, and years. And as a teacher here, I was also a mandatory reporter. And I can remember, I mean, I would lose my license if I didn't report. And I had to report suspected child abuse or child neglect. And if social services did not take the child out of the home that day, that child, and it could have been a kindergarten student, six years old, would be going home to the abusive home. So it, it's very difficult for teachers to be able to grapple with the fact that they may be sending a child home into the situation that they just disclosed. And I don't know an easy answer for that, except that you know, social services has to be much more, I think, active in removing kids right away, even if it's to fall. I felt like taking the kids home with myself. Yeah, if, uh, the other issue is that social service intervention is quite stigmatised and stigmatising for families. So, you know, it's very embarrassing to have a social service intervention. And so one of our questions is, you know, if, if the education environment was quite holistic and there was health services and social services, just as a normal part of the school environment, but to really kind of take that, um, that punitive stigmatizing aspect away because, and, and also intervene early so whatever's going on for that kid doesn't escalate to the point of removal. 
you know, in, in my country, you know, we have um, a significant proportion of First Nations people, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, you know, my, my government was actively involved in the genocidal removal um, of children from Aboriginal families, you know, right up until the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and we, we continue to see quite high rates of child removal from Aboriginal families because of intergenerational trauma and intergenerational poverty as a result of previous government policies and, you know, contemporary racism and, and so on. Um, and so, um, you know, the child removal for Aboriginal families and, and I think for many disadvantaged communities just um, actually reactivates intergenerational trauma and, and means that their kids, when they grow up, are more likely to be removed. So, you know, we, we need to look at kind of alternative ways of supporting families, but still, of course, I think undoubtedly removing kids where parents are simply unable to provide for them or abusing them. Mm. It's a tricky situation, isn't it? No, there's no, there's no easy answers, but, you know, trauma is really at, at the heart of this. And even when we're looking at, you know, offenders who are really serious offenders against kids, um, you know, when you look back at their childhoods, it's often not a surprise. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not an excuse, but it's not a surprise. These uh, are typically people that have had very disrupted and, and, and perverse childhoods. Michael, you mentioned how in Australia, everyone is required to report abuse. Are there any exceptions to that? Uh, so mandatory uh, reporting um, uh, is specifically for, for all professionals and, and we're not, nobody's um, uh, exempt from that. Um, and that includes, um, that, that includes me, for example. So if I'm undertaking research and I'm provided with information that identifies a child that is at risk, I am required to, to report that to child protection uh, authorities. There's currently, appears to be some uh, exemptions for uh, priests in the confessional, Catholic priests and a, an ongoing debate around that. We've had one state that has removed um, the confessional seal um, and requires priests to report sexual abuse that's disclosed to them in, in, in confession. Uh, and it, it remains an ongoing discussion here. Can you explain to those of us who are not familiar with uh, how Australia is set up, what you mean by state? You said there's one state. Yeah, so, so uh, quite similar to the, the US. So obviously we've got the, the federal government um, or what we call the Commonwealth government. So that's the overarching national government. We have the states that, um, are, you know, that um, constitute the, 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 the country and, and have their own state government. So um, a fairly similar federated structure to the US. Which state has removed that um, seal of confession? Uh, so uh, Victoria is my understanding. Victoria being... Uh, yeah, uh, probably our, our most liberal and, and progressive state. Okay, we like Victoria. No kidding. The reason I asked was because here in the United States, each state has their own requirements. So not all states, not everyone is required to report. And in fact, in Maryland, where Gemma is, of course, where this entire story is about, they actually do have in their law a specific language that allows an exception for priests for that for the very confessional that you were mentioning so that's interesting that you guys over there are recognizing that as well on the other hand yeah on the other hand all adults in maryland are mandatory reporters so anybody over the age of 18 so for example if someone 
contacts me and tells me that they, let's say, for example, they were abused by the priest at Archbishop Keogh High School, I have to tell them that if they share that with me, I'm a mandatory reporter. Now, a lot of people come to me before they go to the police because they sort of don't know what to do, and they all think I'm lawyer, law enforcement, counselor, like 8,000 things I'm not. But I really have to be honest with them and tell them, if you're going to share this with me, I have to report it. So it, it's, it's a difficult balancing act, but priests in the confession, as you said, they are exempted from this. Yes, and that's been the case in Australia historically uh, as, as well. Um, we've just had a, a very large public inquiry, national public inquiry into the sexual abuse of kids in institutions. So this is called a Royal Commission. And a Royal Commission has certain legislative powers that no other public inquiry has, including it's able to coerce uh, witnesses and it's able to uh, require the production of documentation, basically under, under threat of, of criminal prosecution. Um, and there, uh, we've, it's an unprecedented inquiry. It actually cost um, about half, um, half a billion dollars uh, Australian. Um, and so we did have a number of cases here where there were clergy abusers who were abusing kids and then going to confessional and being, you know, for them theologically being expunged of that sin uh, and then returning uh, back to abuse kids and then going to confession to, um, to purify themselves. And in, in one case, uh, for one very prolific offender, this happened hundreds of times. And so there was concern raised by the Royal Commissioners that confession was actually facilitating um, uh, pedophiles to sexually abuse children. And so they, they recommended the removal um, of any legislative protection around the confessional seal. Um, that's been quite controversial. And we have had um, a bishop state publicly that he would rather go to prison than, than report um, sexual abuse disclosed to him um, in confession. Wow. Send him to prison. <laughs> That's crazy. I never thought of that happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, as you said, Victoria's removed the seal of confession and that's enlightening. But if you, when you think about that, it's actually exacerbating the situation, you do something bad and then you get forgiven, then you do a bad and you get forgiven. Talk about a vicious cycle that needs to stop, right? I think it's going on here too. Anyway, um, Michael, we, we are aware that you're listed as an advisor for the e-safety office. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the Office of the e-safety commissioner is quite a unique agency here in Australia um, with statutory powers to require the removal um, of illegal or, or harmful content. And so that includes um, child sexual abuse material, um, and also non-consensual images of adults. So the eSafety Commission has a range of powers actually under law um, that she, she's empowered to um, enact. They're, they're really a fantastic office because if you're a child, if you are you know, the, the, the caregiver of a child, if you are an adult who gets into trouble online, and that includes the kids, that includes cyberbullying, for example, then you can contact the office and they have case managers um, who will basically manage your case and liaise with social media platforms and with internet service providers to ensure the removal of the harmful content. So there's really no office like it in, in the world and they're very effective 
once they've been contacted by victims, they're very effective at reducing the harm of online abuse and online harassment. So um, I've been appointed this year to their advisory committee, particularly around the issue um, of child sexual abuse material, how we might more effectively disrupt people's access to child sexual abuse material, um, and also um, what would a victim-focused response to survivors of child sexual abuse material, what would a victim-focused response look like? Michael, you're also listed as an advisor for Protect Children. Can you tell us what the purpose of, is of that charity? So I'm also an advisor to the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, which is a truly incredible charity based in Winnipeg in, in Canada. The Canadian Centre uh, runs the, the tip line in Canada, which takes reports from the public um, of online child abuse and sexual exploitation. Um, they also run uh, prevention programs through Canadian schools to prevent abuse. And they also work with um, the families of abducted children. Um, so they're quite an interesting organisation that, that works really at the acute end of, of child protection. The Canadian Centre, um, a couple of years ago, created a piece of software called Project Arachnid. Um, and Arachnid um, has revolutionised the global response to child sexual abuse material. It's able to um, automatically detect and request the removal of illegal images of children that we know of. So images that have already been classified as, as child pornography. Um, so it's able to automatically um, uh, detect them uh, and request removal. Um, but it also uses machine learning to detect similar images. So Arachnid has been able to not only detect known images, but detect um, those images that are very similar to known images. So it's been able to create a full picture um, of all of the images associated with the particular incident um, of, of abuse. Um, so in the past, perhaps police and Interpol might have known of a couple of images of that abused child. Um, Arachnid has been able to collate um, 100 or 150 um, that um, are being circulated by, by offenders. So that's given, given the Canadian Centre a very broad bird's eye view um, of the extent of the global trade in child sexual abuse material um, and also with a high degree of accuracy to detect where that material is, where it's being circulated, but also because Arachnid automatically requests removal, so it sends takedown notifications to internet service providers. It's able to detect who is keeping the material up. Um, so it's also able to detect those criminal um, uh, internet service providers and tech companies who are actually facilitating the trade in child sexual abuse material. So, um, I've been working with the Canadian Centre now for probably about three years. Really amazing organisation. They do incredible work with victims and survivors of child sexual abuse material. Um, they put together um, an advocacy group um, of young women whose abuse was recorded and distributed in childhood. Um, they're called the Phoenix Eleven. Uh, and the Phoenix Eleven, um, their identities are anonymous, um, but the Canadian Centre supports them um, to fly all around the world to speak to, to, to ministers, to meet you know, major um, decision makers, to talk about the impact of child sexual abuse material on their lives. And it's really just transformed uh, how, we, how we think and react to the issue. It's been incredible. Michael, we know that you also have your own website called Organized Abuse. And I wanna make sure our American listeners know that the word organized is spelled with an S on your website so that they can find it. 
Can you talk about that for us, please? Um, yeah, so um, I set up uh, organizedabuse.com um, probably three or four years ago. Um, really is a bit of a placeholder for the issue. It's just where I give some basic information um, about um, organized abuse and also just collate all of the work that I've done, the papers that I've published. Um, I have a, a blog there that's not updated very frequently. I came to this area of work not, not by choice. I came to it really in my, my late teens. So in the late 90s, uh, I met a young woman uh, who was a victim of organized abuse. We were both uh, still teenagers. Um, she was being abused at the time. There was a large uh, police investigation um, unfolding over a couple of years um, into the uh, alleged perpetrators in that case. There were a number of, of other young women um, who were disclosing the same type of abuse by the same people. There'd been a number of child protection investigations into those allegations in the preceding 10 years, um, none of which had resulted in any criminal prosecutions. Um, and so just through my association with her, um, I, I was sort of pulled into uh, a pretty, pretty dark, dark world. And Gemma can probably relate to, to, to this experience. And, and that, that's ultimately what sort of set me on the path to um, becoming a criminologist and doing the work that I now do for, for, for a living. So um, the website is really just about, um, you know, holding a space online for this issue and really flagging for people that organised abuse takes place, that there is evidence for it, um, that there is peer reviewed and legitimate scholarly publications. Um, and uh, I also, um, I get a fair amount of contact from individuals through, through that website um, who contact me through the site just to talk about what's going on for them. Um, some of them are survivors. Um, some of them are, are professionals um, who are looking for more support. Michael, our discussion today is a result of us coming across a tweet that you had made on December 29th, 2019, for listeners who might be listening to this late. I just wanted to read it really quick before we go into our next question. You had said, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation is officially dissolved tomorrow. It was launched 27 years ago, claiming that adults disclosing child sexual abuse are suffering from, from a syndrome, quote unquote, of vivid false memories of abuse. Can you tell us what did the False Memory Syndrome Foundation stand for and why it was created? Yeah, so the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was, um, was formed in the United States in 1992 by a married couple called Pamela and Peter Fried. In, in, in the, the couple of years before the formation um, of the foundation, um, they had become aware that their daughter, Jennifer Fried, um, had um, disclosed uh, sexual abuse by Peter to um, Jennifer's uh, then, then husband. Um, and there'd been a confrontation between Jennifer's uh, husband uh, and Jennifer's parents, uh, in which uh, her, her husband uh, informed the parents that what, what Jennifer had, had disclosed. Uh, and essentially, the, the Frieds retaliated against their daughter. Um, Jennifer um, was and, and is a professor of psychology. She's actually an expert in the psychology of memory. Um, Jennifer's a, a, a fantastic scholar. Um, she is a, a pioneer um, in the complex trauma field. Um, she is the editor of the Journal of Trauma and Dissociation, um, and I sit on the editorial board there. She, at the time, was, was based at a university. 
uh, her parents contacted um, all of her colleagues, the, the suggestion that Jennifer was mentally ill, and then with the formation of the foundation, they actively recruited um, members of her own school, as well as a, a range of other academic psychologists um, into a foundation. And the foundation claimed that many allegations of child abuse made by adults were the product um, of therapeutic malpractice. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation claimed that therapists were inducing or implanting vivid memories of abuse um, in vulnerable adults and then encouraging those adults to accuse other innocent adults, often their parents, uh, of, of abuse. It's important to understand the context here. Um, in the early 90s in the United States, there had been a range of um, successful law reform efforts to extend or change the statute of limitations in uh, both criminal matters and civil matters for child sexual abuse cases so that adults could um, seek damages or, or make reports of sexual abuse that had taken place um, in, in early childhood, that there had been a delay in report, uh, in, in some cases because of traumatic amnesia. So uh, it's very common in both children and, and, and adults who experience trauma that they experience um, either partial or full amnesia for the traumatic event. This has been observed um, since World War I where in, in, in some cases in World War I, um, you know, 30% of returned servicemen had some evidence of amnesia for combat. So it's very well known that amnesia is a, one of the symptoms of trauma. But the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was uh, an intentional effort to challenge the, these law reform strategies and to create a defence for adults, mainly men, um, accused of um, sexually abusing children where the complainant was an adult. Which brings us to the keepers. Michael, I, I have a feeling you've seen some of it, all of it. Can you give us your perspective on what you saw and what were your thoughts when you watched? Uh, look, I, I found the keepers incredibly moving. Um, I found it incredibly compelling. I was very angry is probably the right way to put it, particularly towards the end um, of the, the show. You know, I've, I've interviewed probably over 50 survivors of organised abuse and uh, there was a lot of similarities between, I suppose, the plight of some of the key figures in The Keepers and, you know, many of the women that I've spoken to who have had, you know, um, pretty credible evidence not only of their own severe sexual exploitation, but other criminal activity that's taken place, you know, in association with their own abuse. Um, uh, and they've, you know, very much reported that criminal activity in good faith and then been re-victimised by, by police and the justice system because of a, a lack of faith in, in their testimony and the way in which, you know, the pseudoscience of false memories has been used to justify stereotypes about, you know, women being crazy and women being liars and women being fantasists. So, you know, to see that unra unravel through the course of the keepers and then ultimately to be presented with pretty strong evidence that there were figures in the keepers who were, um, who were speaking the truth, you know, I found that very moving and, and very um, frustrating and also, 
you know, I was, I was really amazed that this story was brought to light. And I think it's, it's, it's had a huge effect on the public understanding and, and public uh, willingness to, uh, to think more broadly um, about these sorts of cases. Michael, are, are you familiar with Paul McHugh? Yes, I am, yep. Okay, then I don't have to explain to you who he is, right? <laughs> no, no, um, yeah, I, I know who he is, yep. Okay. Um, well, he was instrumental in the early 90s of, um, how can I say this? He testified that the women who came forward to accuse the church, the, the school, the priest, the gynecologist of abuse, he uh, claimed that they were suffering from false memory syndrome. And we have found more recently that he is actually one of the individuals who worked at Johns Hopkins as part of the MK Ultra program. Are you familiar with MK Ultra? Uh, yes, yes, I am. Okay. So one of our survivors, Jean Wayner, who was Jane Doe, questioned recently when we found this out as to whether or not that would have been a conflict of, of interest. And I think it obviously would have, but uh, we want you to be honest. We don't, we don't censor anything. So we are interested in your thoughts about him and his involvement with the Doe Row case, which was Gene Wayner and Teresa Lancaster in the early 90s, along with his involvement in MKUltra. Do you have some thoughts on that? So, you know, I, I, can't, I don't have any particular um, sort of insights into uh, McHugh and, and, um, and, you know, any, any um, sort of government-funded um, research that he might have been undertaking at Hopkins. I, I think that there's, it's important to sort of think about this in, in a historical context. Um, the, uh, certainly, the, the, uh, the view of um, human psychology that was weaponized in the Cold War um, you know, not only by the United States, but, you know, we saw the, the weaponization of, of this view, um, you know, right across, uh, right across the, the, the globe um, by the major powers at the time. And was it essentially that, that the human mind um, was, was comparable to a machine? Um, so the, the, the brain uh, functions like a computer and the mind is sort of like the software or, or, or something like this. So it was incredibly sort of mechanical understanding of human psychology. Um, and this this view was implemented, you know, not only in um, in, in the Cold War and in the military industrial complex, but it was implemented, um, you know, right across, um, you know, very mainstream um, mental health uh, at, at at the time. And this is where we see um, notions in the fifties and the sixties emerging around, you know, um, notions of brainwashing, notions of mind control, um, notions of programming and, and deprogramming. Um, and, and efforts to essentially control the human mind, um, which were just incredibly destructive. Um, it's, it's no great surprise that um, prominent, you know, prominent psychologists and psychiatrists at some of the best research institutions um, in the US um, were receiving government funding um, to do um, related work as part of, um, you know, as part of sort of a, a broader set of, of, of projects. There was a lot of money that, that was that was coming through um, those those channels at the time, 
And, you know, McHugh very much reflects a very... Uh, he reflects a psychiatrist of his generation. He's a deeply conservative individual. Um, you know, he's still with us today. Um, he opposed uh, marriage equality. Um, he was a staunch supporter of the Catholic Church um, all through the sexual abuse scandals and, and testified in defence uh, of priests who we now know um, were very serious and prolific sex offenders and, and he was an expert witness in their defence in the mid-90s. Um, and he also bore with him, I think, to the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, you know, a set of convictions not only about how the mind works, which is a very kind of quite mechanical, uh, 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 very mechanical uh, view of, of, of the human subject, um, but also, you know, he was very suspicious of the revolution in, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm suggesting, I don't have particular insight, but he seems to have been quite suspicious um, about the revolution in mental health that had been brought about um, by the child abuse movement and, and the trauma movement. You know, it was a direct challenge to the paradigm of psychiatry that his entire career was, was based on. Um, and he was, um, uh, he was a, a very vocal opponent um, of uh, movements of, of uh, feminists, uh, movements of, of adult women who were seeking justice um, as a result of um, early childhood trauma. Guys, I am passionate about crime and podcasting, but sometimes I need a break. When I feel the need to get my mind off the world, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. The challenging puzzles makes it the perfect game to challenge friends with. One of my favorite features is that you connect to your Facebook and compete with friends on progressing to further levels in the game. My favorite time to play is at night. It helps get my mind away from my busy day. If you want to start playing, make sure you add me on Facebook so we can keep track of how far we get. And because you don't need internet to play, it's a great game for traveling. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters too. This is a five-star rated mobile puzzle game, and you can download for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. This episode is brought to you by Sunbasket. Two of my biggest dislikes would be grocery shopping and finding recipes online. Finding a good online recipe from a Google search is rare for me, and having all of the ingredients on hand is a coin toss. This is where Sunbasket comes in. They deliver healthy, delicious meals straight to my door. Their website is super pleasing and easy to navigate. And one of my favorite features is that you can filter meal options by dietary preference, like paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian, and even soy-free. Someone in my household has a soy allergy, so I can't tell you how nice it was when I ordered this week's meals that I could filter it out. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient with everything pre-portioned and ready to prep and cook. This week, I picked these meals to try. Hoisin steak strip lettuce cups with pickled daikon and carrots, roasted salmon with miso glazed eggplant, and black bean tostadas diablo with cabbage slaw and guacamole. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com slash play and enter promo code play at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash foul play and enter promo code foul play at checkout for $35 off your order sunbasket.com slash foul play 
and enter promo code FOULPLAY. Was Paul a part of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation? Yes, he was. So he, was an, he was an advisor. He was a very early advisor. Um, he brought a lot of credibility to the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Um, you know, the, the, um, the name of John Hopkins, you know, has a lot of currency. Um, they're early. I think it was the first False Memory Syndrome Foundation conference was co-sponsored by John Hopkins. So he really brought a lot of weight and a lot of heft uh, to the movement. Um, it's also worth recognising um, that for many of these prominent supporters, academic supporters of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, throughout the 1990s, they were appearing in court um, very regularly for uh, in high-profile cases for men who'd uh, been accused of sexual abuse. So they were offering um, expert um, uh, defence testimony in, in court that, um, you know, would, would have been... Um, uh, you know, supportive of the of the argument of the defence, and they were paid to to do so. It was quite lucrative through the nineties to act as an expert defence witness. I can't speak specifically about McHugh, um, but we know of other expert defence witnesses like Elizabeth Loftus, um, who proudly announced in the mid nineties that she was charging the same amount per hour um, for expert um, uh, testimony. Um, that a top-tier lawyer would, would, would charge. So at that point, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, academics, and we're, we're fairly well paid, but, you know, we don't, um, you know, we, we, we're not, um, you know, we don't have a lot of opportunities to make large amounts of external money. That's true for most of us. Um, and we're talking about people who were, were walk, walking away from um, cases with tens of thousands of dollars in, in extra income. Um, that's that's pretty significant. And the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was a bit of a clearinghouse for that. So if you're an academic who was connected to the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, um, you know, they also had a lot of defence lawyers associated with the foundation who were very actively involved in the foundation. Um, and so the, the, the foundation was able, if you came in with a complaint, so you'd been accused of abuse, they could connect you with a lawyer, they could connect you with an expert, uh, a set of expert uh, witnesses, uh, and as long as you had the money, and this is, you know, pretty expensive, but if you had the money, then you had a pretty good defense strategy um, uh, right there. Explain to us how or why the False Memory Syndrome Foundation closed down. Yeah, look, I think it, um, you know, it, I think it shut down for a few reasons. Um, it, it, it wasn't very good at generational um, renewal. Um, so... Uh, really, uh, you know, Pamela and, and Peter never handed the reins of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation to kind of the next generation. There, there was no, uh, there doesn't seem to be any attempt within the organisation to seek um, other people to kind of lead the organisation. Um, so more, more or less, it's been essentially inactive for, for over 10 years now, um, and the closure um, was... Um, you know, it was really just a, a formality, uh, I think, that would have been required uh, of them um, under, under US law. Um, you know, the, it's interesting, by the early noughties, um, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation is kind of claiming victory. And, and we have people like McHugh saying in the early noughties, so 2002, 2003, you know, we won. We, we won this debate. Um, everyone accepts that false memories is real. 
um, everyone accepts that recovered memories and traumatic amnesia don't exist and, and they're false. Um, the irony is that the opposite is true. Um, you know, there's been recent surveys undertaken um, by academic false memory proponents where they've gone out and they've asked therapists and law enforcement and other professionals, you know, do you believe in recovered memories? And they've said, yes, we do. <laughs> you know, the majority of people that work with, that work um, at the front line with traumatised people, that work at the front line with allegations of abuse, uh, they deal with traumatic amnesia and recovered memories all, of, all the time. Um, it's just a routine part of, of doing this, this, this work. So um, I think the False Memory Syndrome Foundation would probably like to claim um, that, you know, they, they won the battle and there's no need for them anymore. Um, but it, it's actually the, the opposite is true. And I have to say, you know, frankly, my side won the, the, my side won the memory wars um, and traumatic amnesia is, is simply just part of mainstream psychology these days. Um, my understanding is the British False Memory Society uh, is still going. Um, they received, uh, my understanding is that they received a substantial endowment um, in the 1990s that they continue to, 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 to live off. Um, one thing we don't have good uh, insight into is um, kind of the financial backing and the financial support um, of the false memory movement. It's certainly something that would be good to, to dig into. Um, because, you know, even in the US, I mean, in 2010, when the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was essentially defunct, um, but they received a $100,000 um, uh, donation from a deceased estate um, from a, a, a professor who passed away and left them $100,000. Um, and that's um, enabled them to set up and, and run an archive, of, uh, an archive of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Um, so in fact, you know, if you receive uh, permission, you can go and, and you can examine their documentation. And I was speaking to a journalist uh, last week uh, who's done exactly that, um, flown out to examine, uh, received permission to examine the archives and, and flew out to examine the archives. Um, but I mean, I, you know, as, as someone who's fairly active in the not-for-profit sector, it's pretty rare to receive a donation of $100,000 US and it's just interesting that this issue, you know, attracted so much passion uh, and, uh, and, and frankly, you know, money um, from, from individuals in the community. Okay, you don't have to respond to this because this is going to not go over well with some people. But the first thing I thought of when you said that was that maybe that deceased person was a pedophile or maybe the money came from the Catholic Church. So let's move on. <laughs> we actually, I mean, interestingly, he, he is a named, um, he is a named donor. Um, so, so you can actually find out, uh, uh, you can actually find out who he is. It, it, it is public. Um, and, uh, and he, uh, Pamela Fry stated in 2010 that he'd been, he'd long been involved and, and closely involved and closely interested in the False Mauritius Foundation from its, from its early days. Um, and then actually it, it's upon his passing that he left this money in, in, in his will. Um, so in terms of the public record, we, we have no, uh, you know, no evidence of, of his involvement until, until that time. Um, but it was uh, an issue that he felt strongly enough um, that upon his passing, he left a, a really, you know, very, very substantial bequeathment to the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. You know, I, I will say, um, you know, I previously sat on the board um, of 
directors of an organization here in Australia called um, Adult Surviving Child Abuse. Um, it's now called the Blue Knot Foundation. You know, we would have, uh, it would have been amazing to get uh, donations of that, of that kind, but, you know, abuse, abuse survivor movement, you know, often the, the, the people that we appeal to, uh, you know, often they've, they've struggled in their life because of the impact of abuse um, on them. Often there's been disruption to their education and their employment. You know, they're not in a position to donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cause um, of, of, of trauma recovery. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, we, we just don't see wealthy donors come forward in that way. And it is a real asymmetry for us. Michael, you had mentioned earlier Johns Hopkins. And before I ask you this, we know for a fact that Johns Hopkins was involved with the MK Ultra programs because of financial documents. So it's interesting. Did I hear you say that they were also involved with the False Memory Foundation? Uh, so, so certainly, it, it looks like through um, McHugh's, um, you know, role at, at, at John Hopkins, he was very senior there as a departmental chair. Um, that there was, for example, co-sponsorship um, of um, uh, of of the first False Memory Syndrome Foundation conference um, in the early nineties. And, and for, you know, for a not-for-profit that's establishing itself, to have that kind of sponsorship and that kind of promotion from, from such a legitimate organisation, I mean, that's, that's gold. You know, that, that really puts you on the national and international agenda. Um, and certainly the False Women's Syndrome Foundation enjoyed um, that kind of advocacy and, and sponsorship from um, academics in a range of very well-regarded um, Ivy League and, and research institutions in the U.S. Talk about a conflict of interest, though. If they're if if they're already involved with a federal program that tries to help manipulate memories, and then they also have someone senior on their on the board of their school or of of, of Johns Hopkins, who are all who's also a part of the False Memory Foundation. I mean, I, I can't speak to, to directly to um, McHugh's uh, in, involvement in, in particular um, sort of streams of, of, of research in John Hopkins. Uh, you know, what, what I would say is that it's, it's, what I would say is this, is that if we could implant false memories in adult mental health clients, we would. Because what we would do is we would implant them with memories of happy childhoods and parents who loved them. Um, and this would resolve so, so much of the pain and the suffering um, and, and the, the agony that we see when we work with adult survivors of child abuse. They desperately want to have false memories um, of, um, of a loving, supportive childhood. Um, if, I have to be frank with you, you know, recovery from childhood, uh, from childhood trauma um, for, for many people, is, is a very, very difficult pathway. Um, and, and if it was possible to take a shortcut like implanting false memories, I think ethically we would be impelled to do so. It is, it is impossible. It is impossible to uh, implant vivid false memories of childhood events in adults that have never taken place. It is simply impossible to do it. And if it was possible, we would do it because it would relieve so much, so much suffering. That's a great point because I'm pretty sure almost everyone listening has something in their life that 
that happened in the past that we all would go to someone to forget and, and replace those memories if we could. So that was a great point. I was actually talking with Lynn Shermer earlier this morning, and she mentioned that you guys know each other. I was going to ask really quick how you guys know each other. But before I do that, for the listeners who don't remember who Lynn is, Lynn, we actually interviewed for our podcast. She's a survivor who was able to link the MK Ultra program to someone in Maskell's abuse organization in Baltimore. Lynn was able to identify one of the abusers in the program as the gynecologist that Maskell brought some of the Keo girls, girls to. So, Michael, can you tell us how you, how you met Lynn? Yeah, so this was sort of before um, I worked um, professionally in, the, in this space. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I came in, as, as I mentioned, I came in through a friend of mine. I mean, we, we, we met when I was in my late teens. Um, and it was, in the, it was around sort of 2002, 2003 that the, uh, that the abuse case of hers actually hit the headlines here in Australia. Um, and I became aware um, of um, a larger cohort of, of young women who were disclosing the same type of abuse and the same details that, that she'd been talking about with some difficulty to me for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, at, 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 the, at the time, there was just nowhere. <laughs> there was nowhere to go. There was no one to talk to. Um, you know, my, my friend couldn't access mental health care. There, there wasn't there just was nowhere to go. So I went online. You know, if you're in your early 20s, uh, it's 2002, 2003. You know, where do you go? You go online. Um, and there was this really interesting discussion forum uh, at the time. It was called um, Rigorous, Rigorous Intuition. Um, and it was run by a Canadian blogger called, called Jeff Wells. Uh, and, and Wells was just kind of a, a, an interesting guy who was just bringing together, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of loose pieces of, of evidence just to talk about the fact that, you know, some issues that have been dismissed in the 90s as a conspiracy theory, um, you know, issues like organised abuse and ritual abuse, um, that there was empirical evidence, there was strong counter evidence to suggest that some of these allegations had substance. So he ran a fairly um, kind of active discussion board um, and that's where I met Lynn. Uh, and I remember it fairly vividly because it was a time in my life I was in a lot of distress um, I, I had no support. Um, my, my friend was in a lot of distress. And, and at the time, she was still being um, sexually abused by this group of men. Um, and I just, I, I just want to be clear, I had no understanding of what the hell was going on. I just couldn't understand it. I, had no, I didn't know what a dissociative disorder was. I didn't know why my friend wouldn't go to the police. I didn't know why she couldn't keep herself safe. Um, there, you know, um, serious threats had been made to me. Um, in one pretty acute incident, um, my house had been broken into, um, animal blood had been splashed on the walls, um, animal organs had been left in my bed, um, we had dead cats left on our front door, like really pretty scary stuff. Um, and I was sort of melting down <laughs> online. Um, and Lynn was someone that reached out um, and she was someone that really understood where I was at and offered me a lot of support and understanding. Um, and, you know, she was really one of the first sort of really sensible voices in this space that I ever heard. Uh, and she was really, really caring and supportive. And so that's always, you know, stayed, stayed with me. Um, so, you know, I've had the chance, you know, we've been in touch for 15 years and I've, 
you know, I had the chance to, to meet Lynn and um, she's an amazing artist. Um, everyone should go to lynnsherman.com and, and look at her, at her art and also buy her art. Um, when I visited her, um, I was lucky enough just to buy a couple of small pieces um, and um, I'm looking at them now. So I've got some of her art on my walls. Um, and Lynn's just someone that I take really seriously um, and someone that I've learned a lot from and I've got a lot of respect for. We love Lynn. She, um, she's be really become an integral part of our podcast community because she has done several episodes with us, as has her um, very special therapist. And we just, we think she's incredible. And we've talked about her artwork. We've posted some of it online. So I, I really feel like she's been a gift to all of us. Um, but I'm going to change the topic here for a minute. We understand from the New York Times, Michael, that you uh, sent a letter to Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook founder. Can you tell us what that was about? Um, so this is an open letter. Um, it was spearheaded um, by the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in the United Kingdom, which is really sort of the lead um, charity in the UK around child protection. And, you know, they're a fantastic organisation. They've been um, really brilliant uh, on the issue of child exploitation and, and organised abuse. Um, you know, since since the 80s, they've been, a, I think, a lone voice of sanity in this space. Um, they're um, really at the cutting edge in terms of the, the threat that the tech industry poses to children and, and the fact that, to be really honest, um, although, you know, major platforms like Facebook uh, and so on certainly talk the talk when it comes to child protection, um, they are not walking the walk um, around um, their commercial decision-making. Um, Facebook, Facebook at the moment is a pretty good actor around child exploitation. So they're, they're quite active in detecting child abuse material and child grooming on their platform in a way that, you know, other, other social media platforms aren't. So they're reporting large amounts of, um, of child abuse and exploitation on, on Facebook. Um, it's, it's happening on other platforms. Other platforms are just less uh, active in, in detecting and, and reporting. Um, unfortunately, what Facebook um, has said they're going to do is to implement what's called end-to-end -end encryption for their Messenger platform. So Messenger is the direct message, like chat function uh, on, on Facebook. So it's where you can talk to someone one-to-one. -one. Um, and what they're saying is that they're going to encrypt that and it means that Facebook will no longer be able to detect the distribution of child pornography through Messenger, and it also won't be able to detect child grooming um, through Messenger. That is going to massively reduce by up to 70% the number of reports of child abuse on Facebook to authorities. It is going to result in a decrease in worldwide, a decrease in thousands and thousands of arrests every year and prosecutions for child abuse online. What it's also going to mean is that predators on Facebook, at the moment when they're grooming a child on Facebook, um, they then need to convince the child to leave Facebook and go to another platform like WhatsApp or Zoom or Skype um, in order to then um, abuse the child through live streaming or through some other means. Um, 
it's going to be so much easier for the perpetrator if um, Messenger is encrypted because all they need to do is get the child onto Messenger inside, um, inside Facebook and then the predator will be able to do whatever they want to that child and nobody will be able to see that. Um, and so, our, um, so the NSPCC um, invited myself and invited, you know, 130 um, other child protection experts and agencies from over 100 countries around the world to sign this open letter um, that's been um, covered by the New York Times and the Financial Times and the BBC all around the world. Um, we've been really pleased by the coverage, saying very clearly to Mark Zuckerberg, um, you cannot encrypt Facebook Messenger um, unless you put full provisions in place to keep children safe. Um, and, uh, and that's going to be our message to him. Uh, if Facebook, if Messenger is encrypted without child protection, um, without child protection measures in place to, to protect kids, uh, we, will, we will not stop. Um, this is simply unacceptable. I'll make sure to keep following you on Twitter so that I can see any response that you guys get. Yeah, look, this is a really critical um, issue for us. You know, when, when we're working in the organised abuse space, you know, for me, I deal with a lot of um, victims and survivors who were talking about the production of abuse images. So that's a real challenge for us. How can we detect the production of, of images in face-to-face -face environments? Um, there's another piece here, which is about disrupting distribution um, disrupting um, predators reaching out to kids online. Um, we need to see a lot more um, engagement from the tech industry. Um, and as I said, at the moment, they tend to walk the walk and then behind the scenes, we just are not seeing evidence that they're taking this seriously enough and that they're willing to um, protect kids over profit. And at the moment, profit is coming first. Hopefully they'll, they'll change their tune because you guys have been so public about this. Look, and I'll certainly say that, you know, the, this is something that has stirred up uh, a lot of concern um, by the United States government, and it's ultimately going to be activity by, in the United States that's going to change this. The majority of tech firms are based in the US, and that means that they have to, you know, they're, they're required to abide by US legislation. So there are, I think, promising moves afoot. Um, to uh, increase the regulation of the US tech industry. Because, you know, for myself in Australia, you know, I can work with government agencies and statutory agencies here. We can make changes to Australian law, but actually that doesn't have a huge impact on the tech industry because they're mostly US-based. So the US is going to have to lead this and, and drive this. Um, and the more support that we get from civil society and the more support that we get from the community in the US who really understands what's at stake here, the better. Michael, Gemma and I, for the past, well, more than a year now, we've been using our podcast to further try to find out what happened to Sister Kathy. One of the major questions we have is, could the leader of a large pedophile ring, which involved police and Catholic priests, could they have killed someone who threatened to expose them? With your experience in this field, and, and after watching The Keepers, do you think that could be possible? I absolutely think it could be possible. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's no doubt. Um, you know, I think what becomes apparent um, in a case like the Keepers, we've had um, some comparable um, cases here in Australia, um, is that I think, uh, you know, until recently, um, you know, simply the settings in the criminal justice system have not been, uh, have not been right 
to investigate and prosecute these kinds of criminal conspiracies. Um, you know, for example, in, in my country, uh, when we talk about organized crime um, and when we talk about um, strategic, intentional efforts to detect and interrupt organized crime, in my country, that means outlaw motorcycle gang. That's, <laughs> that's been the focus um, of coordinated law enforcement activity for, for two decades. Um, outlaw motorcycle gangs. Now, I'm not saying not a problem. I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, target them, but but essentially, uh, you know, police have set up, um, you know, very specific methodologies um, in order to um, investigate and surveil and, and target this group. We have never seen in Australia or, frankly, um, in other jurisdictions, um, you know, really dedicated strategic work that is on the ground um, by state agencies that is designed to uh, detect and disrupt these kinds of face-to-face -face abuse networks. Um, and so when these cases come to the attention of law enforcement and the justice system, it is by accident um, or it is through the tireless advocacy um, of you know, people, like, uh, people like yourselves. Um, or it's by survivors who just keep pushing the issue until someone finally listens. Um, so yes, uh, when we think about uh, organized abuse and pedophile networks as a form of organized crime, um, when we think about what is at stake um, for this group of offenders, um, that essentially, um, you know, discovery of this offending network would, would effectively mean the end of their lives. They would be going to prison for the rest of their lives. Um, these are people that on the whole are very incredibly cold, very calculating, they lack empathy because, you know, because of the type of abuse that they do. Um, then, then certainly people are disposable. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about one case in the UK, um, a, a, an organised uh, abuse case in, in Cornwall, um, where a group of offenders were sexually abusing kids, they were abusing kids in, in, in strange rituals, um, they, were, um, distributing, um, they were distributing hardcore pornography. We don't know uh, if it was a, a abuse material, but we certainly know that uh, one of the offenders, their, their main source of income was distributing pornography, so we can probably draw some conclusions from that. Um, and they did kill uh, one of their co-offenders, um, uh, so, uh, you know, because they were afraid of, of, of detection. And, and they were actually convicted and imprisoned for, for that murder. So they are, you know, this is a, a type of offence um, where enough is at stake that, that offenders may well, um, may well kill someone um, in order to stay undetected. And, and I think it would be naive um, to think otherwise. Uh, Michael, we're going to tie up in a few minutes, but I want to remind our listeners before we do that many states in the United States are now conducting criminal investigations through their attorney general's office, and that includes Maryland. So I just want to remind everybody that if you or someone in your family or your friends were abused by clergy, the focus is on clergy abuse and we can, as we always do, we will post the contact information because our attorney general is into the second year of this investigation. And I think I send somebody to him probably every week. So please do not hold back. If something happened to you, this is the only way we're gonna be able to change the world. Uh, Michael, for you, 
we have a huge listening audience and we also have like 150,000 people on the keepers site, which I stay active on just to make sure everybody is up to speed. But is there something we as a world can do to help you or that Shane and I can do to specifically help you? And what are some of the projects you're working on? So we're going to let you finish up. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that you've got such a large audience. I think that's fantastic. Um, you know, I think um, we, can focus, we can focus both on the specifics of particular cases, um, but, but also um, start to identify, um, you know, what are the gaps? What, what do we need to be in place um, in order for these kinds of investigations to progress more effectively? Um, in order for survivors and for victims to receive more support. Uh, and I think um, the, the solutions to these issues needs to come from the grassroots. We need to be putting together, you know, a realistic set of demands and requests for, you know, our policymakers, our services, our government that's funded by our taxpayer dollars. And we say to them, you know, here's the problems, but this is where we think the, the solutions are. So I think we all have a really important role to play in that kind of um, advocacy work, not only driving forward these really important cases and investigations, and, and you know, I really think that the Keepers has just been so impressive in that area of work. Um, but, you know, the, uh, for, for example, here in Australia, we've seen a real shift, I have to say, in law enforcement over the last five to 10 years. Victims and survivors, are, you know, not everywhere, but on the whole are having a much better experience working with police. Um, and then in some cases, um, experiencing issues with, um, with prosecutors once they actually, once charges have been laid, you know, how is the state interacting with victims and survivors? Are victims and survivors being treated well? Because they can be really fragile. Um, they can be quite vulnerable. They need to be supported all of the way through the investigation process. So really starting to break down and articulate what victims and survivors need. Um, we have a massive gap in mental health support. Um, we have too many psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists who are graduating without any trauma training of any real kind. They are not being skilled in higher education um, in order to identify trauma, treat trauma, um, work well with trauma survivors. So I think that's another real, real challenge uh, for us there. Uh, and something where I think, you know, our, our collective voices are really powerful. Um, so, I mean, in, in terms of sort of where I'm going uh, in, in the future, um, yeah, I, uh, I sort of work at the intersection of sort of victim support. So um, we've just um, finished a, a large research project um, uh, looking at women with complex trauma, women with severe trauma, dissociative disorders. Um, what do they need from from health, from welfare, from child protection, um, from housing services and from police. So really trying to sort of look really holistically at the whole person um, and, and, and how we can support them to live a, a good life in the aftermath of severe abuse. Um, working with a, an Australian government agency um, here um, called the Australian Centre to Counter Child Exploitation. Um, we're just finishing a study uh, looking at the role of, um, the role of parents in producing child sexual abuse material. Um, so we know that uh, a lot of, of child pornography is actually produced inside the family. Um, that's really difficult for us to detect. It's really hard to detect family-based abuse. 
Um, and I think it's really imperative that governments stop shying away from this issue. We've known this for a long time. It's quite easy for governments to focus on uh, uh, abuse outside the family. Um, and we've made a lot of gains there around clergy abuse, um, external perpetration. Those are really serious issues. I don't want to take away from that. Um, and unfortunately, family-based abuse, because it, it, is quite, it is quite difficult for the state to intervene in, um, I think it's just been kicked down the road for, for, for too long. So I'm um, doing some work there um, and really going forward, really trying to take this victim agenda forward. Um, how can we support victims? But also what can we learn from victims on the ground? Um, how can we get um, state agencies, police to take seriously and, and, and accept the kind of intelligence that victims have to offer us. We can learn a lot from, from listening to, to victims. Um, and also, I think, starting to call out um, those uh, industries, um, those sectors that um, are part of the problem. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, the internet uh, has done wonderful things. It's, it's enabled um, people like us to come together. It's enabled your community um, of listeners to come together, which is amazing. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it's also proven to be the most effective distribution network for child sexual abuse material ever created. Um, and we, we really need to uh, call out the tech industry so that the, the internet, we, we maximise its, its, uh, its power for good um, and we make the internet and the online environment as hostile as possible um, for perpetrators of, of child sexual abuse.